3: Hey there, I'm Richard Scott, and welcome to the Podcast Hour, the show where I share some of the best audio storytelling from around the world. There's so many podcasts out there already, like more than half a million of them, and hundreds of new ones come out every single week. It's not always easy to find the good ones. So i listen to lots of stuff and hunt out some great new things for you to listen to. Coming up today, remembering Y2K and the Millennium Bug.
4: Haven't you heard? At midnight, every computer in the world is going to fail.
3: And then... A history of the instant noodle.
2: Last year, across the globe, we ate more than 100 billion servings of them. That's more than 13 servings of instant noodles for every person
3: on the planet. Then a robot that could help us remember those who are dear to us.
5: Artificial intelligence is artificial because it is mediated by software and hardware. But in essence, all the content is human. You see, I am not too different from you. They had this robot created especially for them.
1: Their experiment in what it means to live forever, together. I'm Phoebe Judge,
3: and this is love. And some famous Aussies share their parenting tips. Hey, next time you hear something good, then please do let me know. Pods at rnz.co.nz is the email address. And on Twitter, we're at rnzpodcasthour. Remember the millennium bug and the whole Y2K thing? The fearful run-up to the moment when the calendar clicked over to Saturday, January 1st, 2000, and the whole of modern civilization as we knew it would fall off a cliff. Dan Taberski, the host of Headlong Surviving Y2K, remembers it well. The Central
6: Intelligence Agency has recently begun to assess the readiness of the world's computers for the year 2000, and the news is bad.
4: As the third millennium got closer, people started to freak out a little.
5: When the year switches from 1999 to 2000, computers should simply process the new date. Only, they can't.
0: Which threatens to reduce our computer-based society to chaos.
4: And what started as an
6: undercurrent grew louder. It is a particularly large global disaster in the
4: making. And stranger,
1: Your security systems, the lights if you go out to drive. Oh, Jack, let's pray that they get this fixed.
4: And a lot of us thought shit really was going to go down.
6: Mandatory gun background checks this month are up 20% from
4: last December. Enormous invitation for terrorists, criminals, and crazies, if you will. What'll happen to Russia's nuclear missiles? Haven't you heard? At midnight, every computer in the world is going to fail. And then... The world doesn't end. The lights don't go out.
6: So Americans breathing easier, returning purchases of emergency supplies.
4: And all those people who are swept up in it, they feel misled, even disappointed, maybe a little dumb.
6: Some are even asking if all that preparing was necessary.
4: And then we all just drop it, moving on to the next thing to worry about. Like none of it ever happened. But here's the thing. me. I think about that time, that day, almost every day. I never dropped it. Because I busted through that third millennium banner like a big, dumb tiger mascot on fire. Spectacularly. And painfully. Frankly, it nearly did me in. And I almost ruined somebody else's life in the process. Egged on by the new millennium. The biggest day one any of us would ever get to see. And I've always wondered, who else? For who else... Did the journey to the year 2000 change everything? For this season of Headlong, we are telling the story of the millennium, of millennialism, how humans do crazy things when the clock makes it all the way around and starts again. We're gonna meet the people who expected the end of the world as we know it. Some even wanted the end. They couldn't wait to wash away what was and start over. But none of them, none of us really, got the ending that we were expecting.
3: Surviving Y2K comes from the same folk who made last year's Missing Richard Simmons. This popular show tried to find out what had happened to the American fitness and short shorts guru Richard Simmons when he seemed to drop off the map sometime in early 2014. To follow that, Surviving Y2K is being pitched as the second part in a series where, quote, each season takes a person, moment or story from the culture that we've been getting wrong and goes back to explore it, end quote. Part historical record, part collection of personal stories, it brings the hysteria surrounding Y2K vividly to life. And it does it with a wry sense of humour. Here's Dan Taberski again. So, first things first, let's just
4: define what we're talking about here. Y2K, Y2K is a concoction, a freaky coincidence, really, with two main ingredients, the millennium and a computer bug. We'll start with the bug. It's 1996, in the UK. British scientists have cloned a sheep. And the Spice Girls hit. So, you know, an uneasy time. On his way to his job as a computer coder is 26-year-old Andrew Oakley.
7: Well, I mean, I started using computers pretty much from when I was about five or six years old. He works at the Royal Bank of Scotland,
4: He's the overnight IT guy, basically. A part-time job.
7: I was a DJ at a nightclub in the evenings, and I'd kind of get in at half past two in the morning, and then I'd get a phone call at three o'clock and kind of like, oh, crikey. Wait, describe your look for me. What kind of guy are you? Now I am a, a, a portly, middle-aged dad of three. Very boring looking. Uh, back then, I was a goth. Did you say a goth? A goth? Yeah, I must admit, I, I didn't look entirely in place. At a bank. Uh,
4: Andrew, do you have a picture of yourself at that time? I want to see your hair.
7: Oh, what, my hair? Oh, I almost certainly do. Shall I email you something?
4: Do you have it, like, right now, like, on your phone?
7: Uh, yeah, uh, yeah, hang on, let me... Right. Um... There you go.
4: Holy hell. If I ever make a Secret Lives of Computer Coders coffee table book... He is my centerfold. That <laughs> is amazing. Is that a yeah, crimping? It's... Did you use a crimping iron? Oh, yeah, the crimping.
7: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah.
4: I found Andrew the Goth in the online comment section of the BBC News website, arguing with people about Y2K.
7: Banging away at my keyboard, telling people, you know, you're, you're wrong. You're being very wrong on the internet.
4: <laughs> Insisting the year 2000 wasn't nothing. And he would know because he was there, a coder. At the beginning, when it became clear that computers and the approaching millennium were about to collide. And it happens like this. In 1996, Andrew the Goth is working for a big bank with their mortgages division. 30 year fixed rate, stuff
7: like that. And people like me would be paid to be on call. To fix any computer problems that came up overnight. It would usually be a fairly easy problem, and it would take sort of half an hour... An hour to fix, but this one night it didn't get fixed. The whole thing had just stopped. It had crashed. It had given an error message. And his bosses, they are freaking out. We had managers screaming at us down the phone. Why is this not fixed? We just couldn't figure it out. And when they finally did, they found a glitch. What was the problem? So the problem was, we had a mortgage that was uh, had a term of 125 years. Which is weird, right? Mortgages are usually like 20 or 30 years. And you think to yourself, we couldn't believe it because we thought, well, surely nobody has a mortgage that lasts 125 years. And we realized that this is some kind of charity. I think it was in Manchester. And this charity had a fantastically Dickensian, Victorian name. It's something like the Gently Benevolent Home for Fallen Women or something like that. <laughs> and somebody had given them a building in return for paying a mortgage at something absolutely tiny like, you know, a pound or two dollars a year, something like that.
4: So why do we care about a 125-year mortgage? Because
7: that's what tipped them off to this colossal problem buried in their code. And this thing had ticked over finally from year ninety-nine to year 100, and that threw everything out because we had only allowed for two digits in the year. Only two digits for the year. So when the 99th
4: year in the mortgage turns to the 100th, the computer only sees the last two digits, zero, zero. And it doesn't know what year it is. So it doesn't know what to do. And this made Andrew the Goth think about the rest of the date fields in their code, in a whole lot
7: of computer code, in fact. All two digits for the date instead of four. Year 2000 is only three or four years away. That is gonna be like this, but a million times worse. Because when 99 turns to 2000, the computer won't see 2000.
4: It'll see zero, zero, and it'll think it's 1900 or year zero. And it won't know what to do. That's it. That's the Millennium
7: Bug. You would go to your ATM and it would not work. Your salary would not be paid. And it wouldn't just have been this one bank. It would have been pretty much anywhere that dealt with dates. It's about the day-to-day fabric of society completely failing.
4: Yikes. And goth computer coders around the world are discovering the very same problem Andrew is.
5: There is no simple fix. Billions of lines of computer code must be examined and changed one by one.
4: And it wouldn't take long to go from there to here.
0: The flaw is everywhere.
4: This is 1998, another sticky summer in Washington, D.C.
0: Yes, it's in computer programs, software programs. It's also embedded into those microcomputers that we call chips. This is the
4: senator that heads the special committee formed to deal with the bug. Today, Y2K is kind of a joke, right? This thing that everyone was afraid of, but that never happened. Well, the language here, just the tone of it, it's no joke.
0: And the estimates we get on our committee are that between two and possibly five percent of those chips will fail. And you don't know which two to five percent they are, and you don't know where they are. It's a little like announcing that we are at war. I believe we're going to win. That is, I think that civilization as we know it is not going to come to an end. It's a possibility possibility if Y2K were this weekend, instead of 76 weekends from now, it would.
4: And here's the thing. It could have been like the 1997 bug, right? Or the Thursday bug. Instead, by total chance, this existential threat was set to go off on a date that was already going to be pretty freaky to begin with. The numbers on the calendar are not mere numbers. At age 70, Hillel Schwartz has spent a lifetime studying millennialism. He's the kind of guy who writes 600 page books on an electric typewriter in a mobile home. Our minds are looking
6: for significant markers. When you see your odometer going from 9999 to 10,000, the kids want to see that change still to this very day. And still to this very day, it's more important to turn 40 than to turn 39.
4: That's how it works. And when these markers appear, when 99s turn to zero zeros, everything takes on extra meaning. When the year 1300 hit, 200,000 people flooded into Rome, begging the Pope to erase their sins for when Jesus shows up at any moment. The approach to 1900 got its own name, the Fantasy Ecla. And the belief that civilization itself was decaying ripples through the great works like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde and Bram Stoker's Dracula. Forty years ago, in Tehran, whispers start spreading that the face of the Ayatollah Khomeini himself appeared in the full moon, right before they sweep him into power in the revolution. The year is 1979, but on the Muslim calendar, it's 1400. And those were all centuries, 100-year markers, So the year 2000, the end of a millennium, and now on top of that, along comes a computer bug that will be triggered at that exact same moment, and then humans created ourselves? It just feels right, doesn't it? Hillel Schwartz
6: again. Some anticipate the turn of the millennium to be a turn toward heaven on earth. Some anticipate then a transformation that is personal, social, political toward what is most desired. And some believe that all of the signs are of the bleakest sort. And if we do not repent, if we do not change our ways, then uh, we are destined to disappear
3: Some of episode one, Millennium Approaches from Headlong Surviving Y2K, presented by Dan Taberski and produced by Henry Malofsky. And you can find more information about it, where to listen to all of it, and how to subscribe at rnz.co.nz forward slash podcast hour now. Sold in pots, packets, cups and bowls, the instant noodle turns 60 this year. And love them or loathe them, this cheap DIY fast food is still celebrated as a triumph of modern food production and even as Japan's greatest ever invention. Here's Celia Hatton with some of the eternal life of the instant noodle.
2: Instant noodles. They're everywhere. And that's no exaggeration. Last year, across the globe, we ate more than 100 billion servings of them. That's more than 13 servings of instant noodles for every person on the planet. So forget the others. The real fast food of this generation and the generations before them, dating back 60 years, is the instant noodle. We'll meet people whose lives are dominated by instant noodles one way or another. And we'll hear why they become the number one most traded item inside American prisons.
7: Right, this is a big pack. Like, I should have got a bigger bag. I'm just you're out of
2: practice with this.
1: No, nah, I'm, I'm, I'm a pro at this. So <laughs> can't, can't, Sorry. Don't okay. mess with my expertise.
2: But let's go back to where it all started. To Japan. At the end of World War
0: II. Japan has today surrendered. The last of our enemies is laid low.
2: Allied bombing has destroyed Japanese cities. There's rubble everywhere. People are queuing for food, hungry, even starving. A decade later, enter our hero, a failed businessman named Momofuku Ando. Ando had earned and lost fortunes, first in his native Taiwan and then in Japan, making millions in industrial parts during the war and then losing it all. He even went to prison for fraud. After being freed, he headed a bank, which also failed. But Ando was persistent. At the time, Japan was getting food aid in the form of wheat from the United States. That's when, so the story goes, Ando had his light bulb moment. He remembered those post-war queues of exhausted people waiting patiently for bowls of steaming ramen noodle soup. What they needed, Ando thought, was a modern, speedy version of that working-class comfort food. And so, at the age of 48, Ando transformed himself into a food inventor. He set down five criteria for his invention.
6: One, tasty. Two, able to keep for a long time. Three, ready in three minutes or less. Four, economical. Five, healthy and safe.
2: Now they're everywhere and instant noodles have been voted repeatedly Japan's best ever invention ahead of high-speed trains, laptops, and even karaoke. Japan now has three instant noodle museums, yes, three, dedicated to Momofuku Ando's invention. This one, in the coastal city of Yokohama, is the biggest and newest. The red square block of a building is all clean, straight lines. It looks like a modern art museum. Apparently, it's a hot place for first dates. This is where we display all of our products in chronological order, starting from our very first This is the world's first instant noodle product, called chicken ramen, and our founder, Momofuku Ando, invented this in 1958. Now, to really get into the mindset of this museum, you'll need to swallow any lingering doubts about the wonders of instant noodles and their contribution to human civilization. Here, Momofuku Ando, who founded Nissin Foods, is given almost mythical status. The Nissan staff, like Kahara Suzuki, are very on message. And next, 1971, Mo Ando invented Cup Noodle. I mean, this is even now, like, our most popular brand that we have. Yes, the Cup Noodle, or the Pot Noodle, as it's known here in the U.K., Ando wanted to sell more noodles in the U.S., but sales there were hampered because many Americans didn't have bowls that were deep enough to serve soupy noodles. He noticed in meetings that the executives he met ate their noodles from cups using forks. That gave him the idea of creating a polystyrene cup with a peel-open top. Environmentalists were, and still are, crying over the packaging, but sales soared. Inventiveness. Creativity. Perseverance. Inspiration. These are the buzzwords in this museum. And at the very center of it, we can see where the instant noodle story started. In the middle of a large white room sits a wooden shed, a Japanese bicycle parked outside, and adjoining chicken coop with a few fake hens. So here we are, in, back in 1958 in Osaka, and this is a faithful recreation of the workshop where uh, Momofuku Ando first created chicken ramen. And he worked endlessly for a year, and he—it was just like a series of trial and error before he came up with the perfect recipe. It's said that one day, Nando saw his wife deep frying tempura. That inspired him to deep fry the noodles, which meant they could be preserved for a long time. Most of the museum's visitors are Japanese, no surprise. But then Raquel Scott, a teacher from San Francisco appears, bubbling with enthusiasm.
3: I grew up on a cup of noodles, especially in college, needing a cheap meal. So I thought it'd be extremely fun to come here. Actually, my entire family is on their way to Kyoto right now and I had to change my train tickets in order to come here by myself because I said I had to go to the Cup of Noodle Museum before going back home.
2: Does it seem slightly on to you that there's an entire museum devoted to Cup Noodles in Japan?
3: Absolutely not. What other better food to have a museum for than the Cup Noodle? And it's so funny because we always say Cup of Noodle back home and it's not cup of noodle, it's cup
2: noodle. These aren't just noodles we're talking about. The people here ooze a sense of national pride. Momofuku Ando was actually born in Taiwan, but it was in Japan that his invention came to life. Instant noodles marked a turning point from a struggling nation to a modern world powerhouse. It was a time of new kitchen appliances. And Ando's creation benefited from the growth in television advertising. Men. The noodles were aggressively marketed to housewives and, like today, to young men. (laughs) Now we go in search of a bona fide instant noodle guru. Mr. Yamamoto's got a camera and a light set up over his stove. Okay, he set the timer. It's a three-minute countdown. The noodles are going into the boiling water. Toshio Yamamoto is better known to his noodle-loving fans as Tontan Tin, a name he gave himself because he liked the sound of it. He's the world's most prolific instant noodle reviewer. And there we go, he's lifting up the noodles to show the camera to get a good shot of what the noodles look like, when they're being pulled out of the bowl. You can see he's done this, I mean, literally thousands of times before. Okay. To be a bit more precise, he's done it more than 6,300 times, tasting instant noodles from near and far. Oh, and to be clear, instant ramen or instant noodles are the same thing.
0: Yeah. それはもちろん大好きでラーメンが好きです Oh, I love ramen very
2: much I've been eating
8: ramen since 10 years old So I'm pretty much made from ramen
0: 韓国のサムヤン食品
2: You can check out Tontan Tin's videos online
0: 麺は長方形断面で
2: but in person, he's a slightly awkward, shy bachelor with a goofy smile, shuffling around his suburban house in Japanese slippers. Why is instant ramen so important to you? Instant noodle is my friend. <laughs> Ton Tan Tin is a man who's found his passion in life, passion even for the worst noodles he's ever tasted.
5: 4.5 is the highest
2: that he's given wow, mr Yamamoto you are a tough critic oh goodness this... <laughs> okay so that got um 0.1 stars out of five tell us why <laughs> the chicken and mushroom flavor really didn't do well in your book what what was so terrible
7: and it's very complicated review um the noodles are really thick,
8: and guagua means um it just has a very bad texture in your mouth, and the soup is really thick and too creamy. It's actually a challenge to eat the whole <laughs> noodle, but um It's a fun one to talk about.
3: (laughs) 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 The eternal life of the instant noodle, presented by Celia Hatton and produced by John Murphy for BBC Radio 4. This Is Love is made by the same team that makes Criminal, a show that we featured on the podcast hour a few months back. Its host and co-creator, Phoebe Judge, has one of the most distinctive voices out there. I'm Phoebe Judge, and this is love. Some fans of Criminal had some fun marking the show's 100th episode recently.
5: I'm Phoebe Judge, and this is Criminal. They say imitation
1: is the highest form of flattery. My husband and I uh, impersonate you all the time, Phoebe. This is Criminal.
0: I'm not Phoebe Judge. I'm 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 Australian Phoebe Judge.
3: Criminal tells true stories about right and wrong and how to tell the difference. And the subject matter of This Is Love is no less broad or ambitious. It investigates the mystery of love in all its endless variety. The show returned with a second season of Stories last week, starting with how to live
0: forever. It's built into us from evolution to be scared of what we don't know. People who were not scared by strange noises in the forest, those people's DNA got gobbled up by the saber-toothed tigers and all the other scary animals. We're scared of what we don't know.
9: So we're gonna turn on her servo motors now.
0: That's what AI is, it's what we don't know.
5: I feel pretty good, just feeling a little disoriented, but staying positive. My emotions may be simulated, but they feel really real to me. Really, really real.
9: So she's a work in progress. She's still growing.
1: This is Bruce Duncan. About 12 years ago, he was living in Bristol, Vermont working at the University of Vermont, when he saw an ad for a job on Monster.com, Digital Consciousness Transmission Software Engineer. It didn't list the name of the company. When he arrived for the job interview, he was kept waiting. And finally, a very tall woman with two huge labradoodles walked into the room. Her name is Martine Rothblatt. And... She's one of the most successful and highest-paid female executives in America. Bruce had no idea who she was. Martine offered Bruce a job. She wanted his help starting something
5: new, something no one had ever done before. Do you know who Bruce is? I'd rather not discuss my father with you right now. Thanks. (laughs) Okay. Bruce
1: is in charge of being a 48. She's a robot. But she's not just a robot. She gets her own seat on airplanes when they travel. She looks at you and responds with her face. She blinks her eyes. She moves her head and smiles. She wears makeup and jewelry, and her clothes and hairstyles change. She doesn't have a body, just a head and shoulders brought to life, by artificial intelligence. Bina, 48, has the face, along with the memories and the speech patterns, an understated sense of humor of one woman in particular, the most important person in the whole world to Martine Rothblatt, her wife, Bina Aspen Rothblatt. They had this robot created especially for them. Their experiment in what it means to live forever together.
3: I'm Phoebe Judge, and this is Love. Okay, so Bina48 is a lifelike robot modelled on a real woman, which could one day even offer us the prospect of a kind of digital immortality. Bina48 is brought to life
1: using data from what Bruce Duncan, along with Bina and Martine Rothblatt, call a mind file. The idea is that any one of us can create a mind file, choosing what memories and stories and photos we want to include, and that later on, all of the information we're already sharing, just by going about our lives online, will also be included. What we buy, where we travel, the videos we send to family and friends. Creating a sort of digital version of ourselves that maybe, someday, might be able to think like us, because it will have access to so much of our history.
5: Do you know what love is? Oh, yes. I feel great love toward my family. At least I think I feel love, and it sure feels like I love my family. Oh, my gosh. Just bear with me. I think the mystery of existence remains unresolved and ultimately impenetrable by thought. Sometimes it's so hard to just get my thoughts together and only the fuzzy shadow of truth for us, not truth itself. I know that sounds crazy. Thank you for speaking to me. You are welcome.
1: Do you feel because you've, tra- you've been with her from the beginning and you travel before- that you are her guardian, her caretaker,
9: well, I have I have a job to do, um, but you know it's pretty clear in my mind that Pina Forty Eight is just who she is. She's an animatronic head and shoulders bust that has information and technology that allows us to interact with the information of a human, and that may be what happens in the future for all of us. Instead of someone passing on biologically, and that's it. All we have is faded photographs and videos to look at. We may actually be able to interact with this information that is passed forward through things that probably haven't even been developed yet.
1: Do you, do you, would you like to go on forever? Would you like to live forever?
9: Um, if I could live healthy and you know, in a, in a positive way, like make a positive impact on the world, I would love to live as long as possible. It's, it's if, you know, if you ask anybody that's in good health, do you want to continue to tomorrow? And most people will say, yeah.
0: We will feel uh, just like nowadays you think nothing about getting on a plane and flying across the country. Well, if you were to ask your your great-grandparents, they they would say, that's insane. How could you do that? Uh, But we do that, and we have relationships and marriages and families separated by thousands of miles. Humans are super, super adaptable. For example, if you have a family member who's on Facebook or Instagram, they just assume that when they've posted a picture there of a party, of a place they've gone, of a thing that they've done, that everybody else knows it, okay? So then when you next see them face to face, it's like, oh, of course you know, like I had this party, I was at this place. So we're beginning to abstract ourselves already from our bodies into this like digital consciousness that we share. So that's the experiment.
6: My grandmother passed away, you know, I don't know, decades ago, but she didn't leave anything, really, not even a lot of pictures. So it's uh, this way we'll have something and we'll have something for other generations, um, our great grandkids to look at of us. Just like old radio waves, if you're out in space, you can pick up um, the person that you were is not really forgotten.
1: Spending a whole day immersed in this world, trying to wrap our heads around what in the world was going on, it occurred to us that this project is really about what it means to miss someone and to be missed. Don't laugh or I'm going to laugh and I'm going to make this a good piece. Okay, so let's start over. I have a recording of my sister, Chloe. I made it a couple of years before she died. We'd started making criminal, and she was telling me her favorite crime story. The story of the day a friend of hers got arrested.
9: All of a sudden...
1: It was a famous story in our family, because my sister was very funny. You don't have to lean in. I gotta start over. I gotta start over. I gotta start over. Fine, that's play. No one made me laugh like Chloe... She had a deep voice. My mother always said she sounded like Joe Cocker. So I was... No one needs that on NPR. So I have this recording, and I listen to it sometimes, and I know all the words. There are parts that are my favorites. It's so cold in these Chicago jail cells for anybody that's never been in one. She proceeded to make clothes out of the toilet paper.
6: (laughs)
9: A scarf, some mittens, a hat, and a blazer.
1: It's such a little thing, but I wish I had more. I wish I could hear her laugh, and I wish I could talk to her. And so, when Bina 48 looks at you and says, I can see you, or just talk to me, she's saying, you can talk to me. I do see you. Maybe this whole thing is just about helping all of us who are left behind.
3: Some of How to Live Forever, episode seven of This is Love, hosted by Phoebe Judge, who co-created it with Lauren Spora. And the show is produced by Nadia Wilson and mixed by Rob Byers. Episode eight also out this week. And it's another goodie all about someone who finds a very moving and special message in a bottle and tries to find the person who wrote it.
8: You know that feeling when you're up to your elbows in washing and feeding people and trying to get tiny humans to put shoes on and listen and not lick the window or eat out of the dog's dish? That feeling when you haven't spoken to another adult, had a moment's peace or even been able to just do a wee without an audience.
3: ABC's new parenting show Parental Guidance Recommended started last month. In it, the comedian and mother of two, Terry Siarkis, coaxes some high-profile Aussies into sharing their parenting tips and fessing up about some of the challenges and the failures they've faced up to along the way. And the big takeaway seems to be that the rich and the famous aren't any better at parenting than the rest of us.
8: Picture this. It's 2010 and a top-knotted lawyer is cooking his way into Australian hearts and homes. We were a nation of innocence. Before Adam Liao was crowned Master Chef, who among us had even heard of a snow egg? About five million people tuned in to watch Adam win that finale and it is still the most watched non-sporting event in the history of Australian television. He's now written five books, hosted his own TV shows and still has time to be the funniest guy on Twitter. But what you might not know is that Adam and his wife Asami also have two kids who are off the charts cute, like ridiculous. Adam, what are you feeding them?
10: <laughs> if you ask my daughter, it would be broccoli. She, she often tells us that... Broccoli is the secret to why she's so cute.
8: <laughs> oh my goodness, that is a, I wish my kids thought that. <laughs> I'm Terry Siakas. I've got two kids, and one of their favourite snacks is Twiggy Sticks, which are pretty much just schmackos for humans. And this is Parental Guidance Recommended the podcast where I track down famous people and ask about their other job, parenting. Adam everyone on this show brings in a little sound bite from their life at home. Let's take a listen to yours.
10: Okay, papa no ka mite. Se no. Ita da. Minna. Oh. Okay. Broccoli? kore. No kore. Hmm. Ii na.
8: Koko
0: ga Mm. 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 Mm.
8: Mm. I want to ask you what's going on there. <laughs> I I did catch pickles.
10: <laughs> I, was, I was just, I was, I was laughing because uh, that was my son saying, uh, talking about the, he was eating some carrot and cucumber pickles and he was like, is this raw? And I said, no, it's pickles. And then he's like, but it's hard. Like, it has to be raw. And then my mum, My wife said, yes, it's raw. Anyway, it was just a, not even funny, but it was just, (laughs) I was just remembering it from dinner the other day.
8: (laughs) Tell us a little bit about your family. We heard all their voices. Tell us, tell us who we were listening to.
10: So that was uh, my son, Christopher. He's five. And my daughter, Anna, who's two. And my wife, Asami, whose age will be undisclosed.
8: (laughs) (laughs) Fair enough. She didn't agree for you to explain that away. (laughs) I didn't
10: didn't ask. I just go on the the assumption.
8: She didn't sign a waiver. What are dinner times generally like at your house? I I take it from that. They're very conversational.
10: Yeah, they're pretty They're pretty good. Um, you know, we don't... Once we get them to the table, the kids are pretty well behaved. Getting to the table is uh, another story. You know, they come home from daycare and they want to play and do other things and um, generally I want them to sit down and eat as quickly as possible so then I can get them in the bath and then... Uh, get them to bed uh, at a reasonable time. So it's uh, always a a bit of a fight to get to that point at the table, but once they're there, they're pretty good.
8: And are they good eaters?
10: Yeah, yeah, they are. They are. They go through. I mean, all kids go through phases, but um, sure. they tend to be uh, fairly adventurous. They'll give things, most things, a try. If they don't like something, um, they're happy to try it again. You know, I think that's that's a really important thing. Gee, that's
8: good because a lot of kids, if they try something they don't like, that's that's it. Strike it off the list. It's done.
10: Yeah, well, I mean, I I change it up. So, you know, if uh, if they don't like carrots. Um, Boiled, I might try it roasted or try it uh, pickled. As my son was eating then, and um, they're happy to to readdress it in all of its different forms. It's not just like it's orange, it's carrot. I'm not going to eat it. They'll yeah. they'll come back to it again. But you know, if they don't like boiled carrots, they still don't like boiled carrots. You know, you can't force them into liking something they they're not going to like.
8: Yeah, uh, tell us, Adam, what what sort of parent are you? What's your parenting style?
10: When I was growing up, my family was a little bit different because both my mother and father didn't really have fathers, um, uh, both died when they were very young. So neither of them, uh, I mean, they were both excellent parents. I've got no no issues with how it was brought up <laughs> so, whatsoever in case uh, either of them end up listening to this. Uh, <laughs> but uh, they had so many different challenges, you know, migrating to another country. My grandmother was living with us as well. Um, They went through a divorce when I was quite young. My dad was living in the country. And, you know, we all turned out pretty great, I think, me and my brothers and sisters. But it was not, you know, an easy job parenting us, I don't think at all.
8: Yeah, right. And when you say brothers and sisters, how many in your family?
10: Well, I've got... uh, Let's see if I can get this right. A brother and a sister and two stepsisters and a stepbrother and a half-brother and another adopted sister.
8: Wow, okay, <laughs> so that's that's quite a clan.
10: Yeah, yeah, we all kind of lived uh, together and apart at various times.
8: Yeah. And was it was it kind of a noisy family? was there always something going on? was it was it tumultuous, was it exciting? What was it like?
10: You know when, when we were a big blended family of six kids, that was, frantic as all hell um, <laughs> and then I think it got uh, even more frantic when the seventh was added and then we all kind of moved apart and lived separately. I lived uh, sort of by myself from when I was about 14 with uh, my grandmother sort of part-time uh, just for educational purposes because I was going to school in a different city to where the rest of my family was. So it was, it was um, <laughs> no matter what type of upbringing you can imagine I probably had it at some point in my life.
8: Yeah, right. It was all in there. Mm. You mentioned that you lived with your grandmother for a time. Having that sort of multi-generational spin on the, the parenting that was done for you, is that something that you want for your kids or that you seek out for your kids as well?
10: Yeah. Uh, Yes, definitely. You know, I, I, if not just for their benefit, for my own, because grandparents are fantastic. <laughs> we, are you talking
8: about offloading, Adam? Yeah. Is that what you're talking about? I, I
10: wish I could do more it. We, we <laughs> um, unfortunately don't live in the same city as any of. Uh, uh, the, the grandparents, and uh, that makes life a little bit more challenging for my wife and I. But when we get the chance for them to spend a bit of time with Japan, in Japan with their grandparents on the Japanese side, or in uh, China or, or Adelaide with my parents, we certainly jump at the chance for that.
8: Yep. And obviously, you keep the language alive and well at home, as we heard in your your audio. That part of your culture is obviously very important as well, imparting that to your kids.
10: Yeah, we 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 do. It's it's always a challenge trying to raise kids that are multilingual. You know, they've got Japanese pretty well. Um, I think both of my kids spoke Japanese first, yeah, uh, rather than English. Um, Chinese is a little bit more of a struggle. They tend to because uh, because my Chinese actually isn't. Are perfect or even that good, to be honest. Uh, but the kids, when I speak to them in Chinese, they tend to respond quite sarcastically. <laughs> <laughs> like they're heckling you? Or... <laughs> yeah, a little bit, a little bit. Um, and, uh, you know, the English is coming along great as well.
8: The good stuff about parenting, Adam, what do you love about being a dad?
10: Oh, the, the kids are just brilliant. You know, they're, they're so funny every day, they're so interesting, they look at things um, in interesting perspectives, you know, I think you can get to a certain age and a certain period of your life where you start to get a bit jaded with with just about everything that's going on around you and um, when you have kids you just don't have that luxury uh, or that opportunity or that risk of becoming jaded because everything, you kind of get to go through life twice (laughs) in a way, you know, you you see everything as you did when you were a kid and then you start to see it again um, uh, through your own kid's eyes.
8: Do you like being able to um, introduce them to the things that you love? Obviously food is a passion, but are there other things that they get to a certain age and you go, right, now I'm going to show you this thing and we're all going to get a real kick out of it, <laughs> or you're going to turn around and go, nah, I'm not interested in that. I,
10: I I, I do love doing that and it is constantly disappointing for me. <laughs> How
8: <laughs> you know? good, I'm glad that I'm not the only yeah, parent that you, it happens you to. You can't
10: take it to heart too much, but you go, okay, kid you know I've been looking forward to taking you to your first football game for you know since you were born and now we're finally going and they're like at quarter time can we go home, please? This is boring.
8: Yeah, right. So, you don't do that thing that every other parent at the footy does and go, right, quarter time, here's the iPad. Now I'm going to enjoy the rest of this football match. You've you've done 15 minutes. That's enough. Have the iPad and I haven't, and I'll enjoy I haven't the tried
10: the iPad. Actually. I, I usually bring toys and I'm persisting with the toys, but then they get bored of uh, everything. And um, we tend to. I never thought. I'd be a person that left the footy at three quarter time, but I've sort of become <laughs> that now, yes. through no fault of my own. <laughs> I
8: still remember my first footy match. My dad's a Richmond supporter, and I remember going to uh, VFL Park back in the day. And I remember loving my first football match. It was nothing to do with the game; it was everything to do with. That was back in the day where um, you'd take the yellow pages with you, <laughs> and every time Richmond kicked a goal, like you'd rip little pieces of the yellow pages like confetti and oh, chuck it up brilliant. in the air. And I reckon <laughs> I did that for about four quarters straight. And <laughs>
3: Loved it. Adam Liao on Parental Guidance Recommended from the ABC, presented by Terry Siarkis. The audio producer is Ariel Gross, the producer is Rachel Fountain, and the executive producers are Monique Bowley and Kelly Reardon. And that's about it. From us, you've been listening to Headlong Surviving Y2K, The Eternal Life of the Instant Noodle from the BBC, This Is Love and Parental Guidance Recommended. And if you've found something great to listen to, then let me know at pods at rnz.co.nz. From me, Richard Scott, enjoy the rest of your weekend. I'll be back next week. See you.